Equal protection under the law is a foundational principle of our Constitution and our civil rights laws. And the Church teaches the inherent dignity of every person, but as a nation, we struggle to live up to these ideals and truths. About 40 years ago, critical race theory, also known by its shorthand CRT, emerged as an academic theory in law schools. CRT claims that race is a social construct, and racism is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but also something embedded in legal systems and policies. Some advocates of CRT today argue that it's a helpful tool for K-12 schools. Opponents are pushing back and seeking to ban CRT in schools. Many Catholic leaders are joining them in sounding the alarm. What is the best way to combat racism and promote principles of equality to the next generation? We'll be talking about that here on Religious Freedom Matters, the education series. I'm your host, Andrea pachati Bayer, Director of the Conscience Project. My co-host, Joan Desmond, is Senior Editor at the National Catholic Register. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Denise Donahue from the Cardinal Newman Society about critical race theory in the classroom, what is good and what's gravely wrong. Joan and I will then discuss a speech recently given on the rise of ideologies and new social justice movements by the President of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, Los Angeles Archbishop Jose Gomez. Dr. Denise Donahue is now joining me. Denise is Vice President for Educator Resources at the Cardinal Newman Society and has written some helpful articles on critical race theory and argues that it's contrary to Catholic education. Thank you so much, Denise, for joining me. Thank you. Glad to be here. Denise, can you start off our discussion by briefly explaining the genesis of critical race theory? And in a nutshell, what does this theory espouse? Yeah, that's really hard because I'm, I'm glad you said genesis because there is an origin to this and it goes way back to actually um, the economic theory of Marx and Engels, which was then promulgated by a group in around 1930s at the Frankfurt School. And they took Marx's economic theory and they applied it to all the social sciences, right? So this economic theory um, was basically that there is this great divide between the haves and the have-nots, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And there needs to be some kind of an equity created between these economic divisions. And that equity actually involved uh, a more revolutionary type of approach. So um, at the Frankfurt School, they were looking at this and they decided to, uh, well, it, it kind of evolved into the different social science groups, like psychology and sociology and, and philosophy and those types of areas. And it was actually Max Horkheimer in the 1920s who stated that we're going to call this a critical theory because this theory actually looks at the emancipation of man from the systems that are enslaving him. So it it came to the United States as this group kind of migrated after the World War to the United States. It went to the Teachers College in New York and was kind of circulating around in higher academia. And it, it then ended up in education, definitely in higher education, and then eventually down into our K-12 schools 
because our teachers were being educated using this type of uh, a theory that looked at uh, systems from the oppressor oppressed perspective. And it was Derek Bell at Harvard, Harvard, yep, in the 1970s, who is being credited with using it with race, looking at critical theory from a race perspective. And with the 2020 summer that we had, um, this kind of took off full force into schools, organizations, alumni groups were seeing, um, pushing very hard into Catholic education and other public school entities with this critical theory perspective that uh, involves race. And really, definitely, that's its whole mantra. It just circulates around race. It sees race in everything. It can apply race to everything. So that's the concern. (laughs) Now, Denise, you know, the summer of 2020 wasn't easy for our country on so many different levels. Right. Racial tensions and civil unrest were one of those really, really tough parts. In in an article of yours that I was reading recently, you write that there are aspects of critical race theory about which Catholics and non-Catholics can agree. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking about not looking at difficulties and the history of slavery that our country had, nor the continuing effects of racism, or even, you know, just challenges that different minority groups have on a global scale and as far as access to education and that sort of thing. But seeing everything through the lens of race is something that's contrary to our understanding of the human person and kind of the truth of the gospel, right? But I want to ask you real quick, you mentioned that this took off into our K through 12 classrooms. Can you explain yeah. a little bit about what you've seen? You've been, you, you are an education yeah. administrator. You have the global perspective. What's been the infusion and how does critical race theory manifest itself in a classroom? Yeah. So it, it really circulated throughout higher education. And fortunately for us, I haven't seen it as much in higher ed in the Catholic colleges and universities that I work with, with the Cardinal Newman Society, which has been a really good thing. But as a Catholic educator in an education department at a Catholic college, we do talk about critical, critical pedagogy and how to implement that in a classroom, right? So there's two different aspects of critical race theory that we're, we really need to talk about. One is the what is it, and the other is the how is it. So the what is it really, it would encompass the curriculum that changes that we're seeing in, the, in literature, uh, in history, you know, the 1619 Project. Um, and uh, can you explain, I know a little bit about the 1619 yeah. Project, but for listeners that may not be familiar, that was right. a project that originated right from the New York Times. Is that, am I remembering? Yeah, yeah. Or it got, got uh, a lot of play and publication from Yeah, that. it did. And it's really a perspective of, based on African-American vision of coming into a country that was filled with white supremacy. The whole point is that the entire United States was founded by white males, and it was set up basically to benefit them. So we're coming at all of history from that perspective. It's almost like the Howard Zinn uh, project, which actually 
looks at history from multiple perspectives of different groups of people. And it's not to say that those perspectives are not valid or necessary perspectives. I mean, I think we need to look at history from all of those different angles and incorporate them. I know some of the Catholic schools are actually bringing in Black Catholic history into the mm-hmm. uh, curriculum. And, you know, all of that is a good thing. It, it, it is a good thing. But it's it's where it pushes out the the real truth or the, the foundational principles, these universal principles that the United States was founded on, you know, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the dignity of all people. And that's something that critical race theory does not like to talk about. They don't believe in these absolutes. They work on a different philosophy where the person and the personal experience has the greater emphasis and and the more valid perspective or or approach. So you have so let to let me just at, make sure yeah. I understand. So we're not finding in classrooms that, you know, sandwiched in between English and algebra is critical race theory 101. But there is a lens by which all education is being affected and maybe even transformed from looking at the full body of truth to really narrowed look at our history, literature, even the sciences and and math and art that almost excludes a full pursuit of the truth. Yeah, definitely. Because the only lens that we're looking at right now is the lens of race. And most there's so much more to look at for the human person in Catholic education, for the full human flourishing of the soul. So yes, definitely the curricula is being revamped. And the approach also is a critical pedagogical approach. And this is something that when a school system says that, oh, we're not using critical race theory, well, they might say they're not using texts that come from certain perspectives or literature that actually advocates racial activism or political social activism. And that, and that might be very valid, but their teachers are actually instructing through a critical race theory lens, or what we call critical pedagogy, where we're looking for injustices within systems. And it's always that. It's not like we're looking for anything else, but it's just where within my society, my school environment, my home, my my local government, my larger government, where is there an injustice? And then the teacher and the student come together in almost a flat relationship. It's um, hmm. there's no authoritarian of approach. It's just we're all going to come together to do this. So student teacher are together. We look at an issue. We analyze the issue. We come up with but kind of like um, approaches or attacks to the issue. We then the. the Bottom line is that there is a social activist component. So while schools can't require students to go out and actually voice concerns through picketing or rioting or whatever, some teachers have given extracurricular (laughs) points, bonus points, if they're involved in those types of things. So it is a critical pedagogy. And in some sense, in, in certain cases, that is a good instructional approach to use, but it brings social activism into the classroom 
which bleeds into political positioning and political activism. So we're seeing this in action civics, actually, that's being introduced across the country. Denise, I'm uh, the mother of 10. And mm-hmm. one of the things that we've been watching and one of the reasons why we've started this this podcast was a concern about parental involvement or the exclusion of parents from the school. Do you have concerns that critical race theory may exclude parents from that important educational process of their children, especially if kids are being taught what was done before is wrong or is a, a a history or a tradition to be rejected. And if if parents are part of that history and part of that past, yeah. um, have you seen the connection and the confidence and the trust that children have in their parents as primary educators being undermined yeah. through critical race theory? Yeah, most definitely. Here's an example. My daughter-in-law is very active in her child's education. And she attends all the board meetings and she voices her concerns about the, the types of literature, the books that are in the library, the literature that the teachers are using. And the only way now, because the parents are not allowed to go into the libraries to actually look at the books or check out the books, is they have to have acquire a list of potential books that perhaps this public library has. And then the children, the children are being asked to go to the library and then check the books out so that the parents now can actually read them and see for themselves some of the things that are in there. So it's really, this is not the ideal environment for any type of education. First of all, the children don't work well when they feel they're in an environment that is not belonging, where they feel like there's this distrust that has been set up between the the teacher and the home, and they don't know who to believe. And, you know, there goes learning. And actually, this was demonstrated by the Heritage Group just came out with their research report on those public entities that had the chief executive officers in them and those that did not. And basically, the achievement gaps between children from wealthier and poorer communities has widened. Black and white gaps have widened. Hispanic and white gaps have widened only in (laughs) those particular school districts. And they actually surveyed over 44% of the school districts in the country. And those gaps are actually continuing to widen. So you can see the effect on student achievement by this disconnect between the home and of school. Course. And we're doing that to our kids as a country and, and as schools who bring in DEI officers who come in and actually revamp school curricula and even look at hiring and admissions of students to get this equity of all minorities. So it's- Well, and just to, to yeah. clarify, DEI is diversity, equity, and inclusion yes. officers. Is that what you're- I want to share one quick anecdote. A friend of mine in town has her daughters in a very prestigious Washington religious, Catholic religious school, and they have a diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. And the talks that the officer has given to her daughters are very disorienting. Mm-hmm. Things from, you know, the bizarre claims that girls shouldn't go and get, white girls shouldn't get tans because somehow that's 
um, suntans because somehow that's racist, you know, which is just a bizarre commentary. Um, but also this notion of pitting the home and the school mm -hmm. and pitting them against one another, which is, as we know, we want schools and families to be partners in education right. and especially to respect the leadership. Before we end our conversation, which is far too short, Denise, what can our Catholic schools do and how can Catholic families lead us out of these very disorienting times away from what is bad about critical race theory and be able to address some of these difficult problems that we continue to have in society, but need to be addressed in a spirit of charity and truth. Yeah, we've got 200 plus years of Catholic social teaching documents that we can refer to. With actually, the Sophia Institute has just come out with a wonderful book of lesson plans that talk about racism from all different perspectives. So teachers have that, and those can be used. Um, the Cardinal Newman Society, in our Catholic curriculum standards, we have incorporated into those standards, which are in uh, teachers use in education, points of Catholic social teaching, dignity of the human person, solidarity, subsidiarity, care for creation, all of those are actually embedded. And the last thing that I really have to say, which I really do believe is an answer to this whole issue of racism, is going back to St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body talks, the, his Wednesday addresses talk about the, the beauty of the person, our common origin, our common destiny, and how man needs to live in community and in communion. And we actually, uh, with our fellow organization, Rua Woods created a set of standards for Christian anthropology that all schools could use and bring those in so that children from the youngest age, when they're growing up, hearing about body, soul, unity, communion, all the right messages that our faith already teaches us, when they hear things counter to that, it'll, it will sound so foreign to them that they'll have to stop and question and not just buy in immediately to um, issues of racism or, or gender ideology. So both of those things. Denise, I really wanted to thank you. Um, this was like you, you said in the very beginning, how am I going to fit so much in so little time? You did a fantastic job. This is something that all families should start feeling the inspiration to roll up our sleeves, look at the supports that we have. You've listed a number of organizations that I think I agree completely have done great work in providing tools, both for families and for our schools. So we are definitely not alone. We are not having to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot out there that can address the problems that we see in society in a way that's going to move us forward in a positive way towards truth and to a full recognition of each of our inherent dignity as children of God. So thank you again, Denise Donahue, Vice President of for Educator Resources at the Cardinal Newman Society. And I'd encourage everyone to check out their work. It's in it's really great resources for schools, for educators, and for families alike. So thank you again for joining us, Denise. Oh, thank you. Joining me now is my co-host, Joan Desmond, Senior Editor at the National Catholic Register, to discuss an important speech addressing the rise of ideologies and new social justice movements by Archbishop Jose Gomez. Joan, you flagged a great news moment in which a church leader spoke out against these ideologies 
Can you share with our listeners a little bit about what has happened recently from Archbishop Jose Gomez out of Los Angeles? Thanks, Andrea. I'd love to. So on November 4th, Gomez gave an address to a Spanish Catholic Congress, and he addressed what he called pseudo-religions. These are new secular ideologies and movements for social change in the United States and in the West. So why does he call them pseudo-religions? That's because they echo Christian values like the promotion of the common good and equality for all. He even used the term salvation narrative, suggesting that they're providing alternative ways of thinking about human salvation, obviously in more explicitly political terms. But anyway, he makes the point that these movements aren't actually grounded in Catholic or any other religious teachings that focus on and base human dignity on the truth that we are all made in God's image and that we find our happiness in doing the Father's will, not our own. Are these parallel ideologies hostile, in Gomez's opinion? I think he's trying to say that they dismiss the need for organized religion and seek to replace its authority with that of science, technology, humanitarian values. I think we've seen that go on in some of our national debates. And while at times that's appropriate, we're not talking about something moral or religious. At other times, there's a concerted effort to actually remove any faith-based response to developments as being kind of you know, unacceptable. He pinpointed what he said was the fundamental flaw. So what is that? I thought this was the really the core of his point. Quote, in denying God, these new movements have lost the truth about the human person. This explains their extremism and their harsh, uncompromising approach to politics, he said. And he noted something we're all familiar with, and that's the problem of cancel culture. It's intimidating people. It's terrifying people. Joan, what was what was the response? Was the archbishop canceled? <laughs> well, yeah, he basically, at least there was an attempted cancellation. It didn't really work. Secular media, Catholic progressives piled on questioning whether he actually cared about the fight for social justice or racial equality. You know, what I love is there were people who came to his defense and in all places, the Washington Post ran a commentator who came to the defense of Gomez. Isn't that right? I really like Charles Camosi's column. He's a Fordham University theology professor. And here is key takeaways in a column he had for the Post. He said, first, he makes a point like, hey, guys, Archbishop Gomez was born in Mexico, and he has always defended the rights of immigrants in particular, and he's also promoted anti-racist values in general. So don't say that Gomez doesn't care. And then he said it's something that some movements are trying to deny, and that is the early effort, the early campaign for racial equality was grounded in traditional Christian ideals about the human person. And back in Gomez's home state, now his home state, California, there's a new uh, a new curriculum called Ethnic Studies, which is kind of inspired by some critical race theory. And they are suggesting in some curriculums that Christianity is part of this colonial system that needs to be dismantled, and that only when you do that can you really promote true human equality. So then Kamosi brought up another point. People say that Gomez was exaggerating the threat posed by these new social justice movements. 
And Kamosi says, well, not so fast, guys. And he flagged a couple of examples. He said that the archbishop had faced attempts to shut down Catholic hospitals and to make pro-life pregnancy help centers in the state refer clients for abortion. That case, as you know, went to the Supreme Court. He also mentioned that the people of the movements he has criticized have defaced and destroyed statues of beloved saints with impunity. And as you know, if you've been following this, St. Winipro Serra has been a key target. Yes. No, trying to attack Junipero Serra is just unacceptable. Even in my law school out in California at Stanford, they started erasing the great tradition and recognition that they gave to Sarah all across the campus. And that was just such a disappointment to see. It's also kind of revisionist history. If we know anything about the civil rights movement, we know about the role of our church leaders in lifting up the importance in speaking out against the attacks based in hate and violence and really pointing to the equal dignity of the human person um, and the love that God has for each one of us. Yeah, and I think what's really important here, Andrea, is that some of these new so-called the ethnic studies curriculum, other curriculums that are even being challenged by mainstream historians as not being accurate depiction of historical events, this is actually an example of that. I realized that St. Winipro Serra's own legacy has some issues. It's from another time and place. We can debate aspects of it, but other parts have actually been presented presented in a really erroneous way. But that's what's appearing in some curriculums. And so students aren't actually getting solid history, which is only contributing to the issue. No, and good for Gomez and good for other other church leaders like Bishop Burbage of Arlington, Virginia, who are speaking out, and for lay Catholics who are defending them against these kind of criticisms from proponents of these ideologies that are so dangerous, both to our faith, but also to our culture in general. So this has been an important and incredibly exciting episode. So thankful for Denise Donahue for joining us. Thank you for listening to another episode of Religious Freedom Matters, the education series. It's been wonderful. I'm Andrea Pachati bayer director of The Conscience Project. You can read more about our work at conscience-project.org. You can find all the episodes of Religious Freedom Matters there and at the National Catholic Register website. That's ncregister.com. Write to us with your comments or send an audio recording to religiousfreedommatters at gmail and let us know what you think of this episode and why you agree that religious freedom matters. Thank you.